0: You're listening to Labor Wave Revolution Radio.
1: As organizers, the nature of power has been obscured. The nature of power under under capitalism has been obscured. And we've been told that for any of you who are old enough to be around during the anti-Iraq war invasion protests of the early 2000s, people were like, well, if we could just get millions into the street. And there were some very radical organizations that also said this, like, If we could get millions into the streets, then we'll be able to stop this war. And we did. We got millions of people into the streets at the same time, on the same day, all around the world. Didn't stop the war because that's not how power works. Power doesn't just get shamed into doing the right thing. I don't snort 'em. Tell the bus cop police to escort 'em. You don't ride out them lies, you just quote 'em. Get off plug into this model. No, you can't outbought them The rules are still going on. The Jews, we homes if guard are not scorned. If you press the ear to the turf that is stolen, you can hear the sound of limitations exploding. Please, sir, may we have another portion with children at a beast that dodge the abortion. That place firm to the floor.
0: This episode of Labor Wave is an audio reproduction of a live discussion with Boots Riley. Writer and director of *Sorry to Bother You* and front person for *The Coup*. The event was organized jointly by the Coalition of Graduate Employees (CGE 6069) and the King Legacy Advisory Board, or KLAB. The cause for the event was to celebrate the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. as well as celebrating the 20th year anniversary of the Coalition of Graduate Employees as a officially recognized labor union. In the discussion. Moderated by our co-host, Andrea Haverkamp, Boots Riley discusses the subversive qualities of radical art, the historical legacy of radical labor organizing, and the need for contemporary militant unions in order to revitalize an insurgent socialist and communist politics. And he brings to the conversation lots of great humor, as well as behind the scenes insights into what it takes to be a creative radical artist in late capitalism. Labor Wave is about to launch a mini-series called After the Revolution, and our first guest is Raj Patel discussing the dinner table after the revolution. So be on the lookout for those episodes. Raj Patel is the first among many great guests that have agreed to have these conversations about a future based on liberation for all. Please check us out on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts, follow us on Facebook and Instagram, And check out all of our content on our website at laborwaveradio.com. The first voice that you will hear in the audio reproduction is Andrea Haverkamp, beginning the discussion by asking Booth Riley about his recent film, Sorry to Bother You.
2: I'd like to start uh, talking a little bit about the film. You've said in several interviews, uh, you summed it up as an absurdist dark comedy with magical realism and science fiction inspired by the world of telemarketing.
1: Yeah. well, <laughs> I mean, that's, yeah, that definitely that, that's part of it, but the, you know, you're, I couldn't give everything away and describe it.
2: Give right? out some more. Give out some more. What else is there?
1: Well, all of the, that happens against the backdrop of a uh, militant strike, mm-hmm. and um, so a lot of people, you know, a, 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 a lot of people focus on the that happens in it, and uh, that's fine because what you end up realizing is that the most normal thing that's happening in in the movie is the strike, and that's the part that we that that we accept as part of life, and that was mm. what I wanted to happen.
2: And I think it's the first time I've really seen union activism in a strike from the point of the worker in a film.
1: Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's very few and far between. I mean, there's Maytuan. uh If you haven't seen that, how many people have seen Meituan? <laughs> yeah, you should check it out. Um, and then, yeah, I don't, I mean... Well there's like Normal Ray and stuff like that but but uh yeah, definitely uh the idea of many films is to obscure class struggle and to show protest as merely raising your voice
3: mm-hmm.
1: and to to obscure you know what uh how power works under capitalism, right, so sometimes you'll get um You'll you'll get someone that's supposed to be uh, radical or militant in some way, and uh, we don't really understand what the methods are that they plan to use to get things to change, right? And we don't. And and so um, I think that it's really important to if you're going to build a world in a film, build a world the way the world is, which Mm -hmm. means that. Uh, we're in a system that, in which the main contradiction is the exploitation of labor. And so, and, and, and which means that our power comes at our place of work, right? So, so much of what, uh, what the left has been focused on for the past 60 years been uh ha- has been spectacle and it-, it hasn't always been that way, but now it- it's i mean for the past sixty years it's been based on let's have a demonstration let's get people into the streets um and you know if we just let our voices be heard that's you know that that's what will change things and you know and 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 I've been part of those demonstrations where all of a sudden, we have 20,000 new people that have come out into the street to join the thing that we're doing. And those new people are like, well, what do we do now? And, you know, the organizers are kind of like, well, I I don't know. Uh, yeah. Lift your voice high. <laughs> let your voice be heard. And that's because even for us as organizers, the nature of power has been obscured, right? The nature of power under under capitalism has been obscured. And we've been told that, you know, like um, for any of you who are old enough to be around during the um, anti-Iraq war invasion um, of the protests of the early uh, 2000s, um, you know, People were like, well, if we could just get millions into the street, and there were some very radical organizations that also said this, like, if we could get millions into the streets, then we'll be able to stop this war. And we did. We got millions of people into the streets at the same time, on the same day, all around the world. Didn't stop the war, right? Because that's not how power works. Power doesn't just get shamed into doing the right thing. Right. Um, and and this is a, a fallacy and argument that, um, again, it, it has its has its roots in the U.S. in in the new left of the 60s. But if you go back. 40 years before that, 30 years before that, that's not how uh, the left or radicals mm-hmm. organized at all. If you look through the 20s and 30s, in the 20s and 30s, for instance, you had, uh, according to the documentary Seeing Red, um, you had 1 million card-carrying communists at a time when the population of the United States was only 130 million people. Um, at the same time as that was happening, you had uh, militant strikes happening in places like Utah, Montana, Alabama, um, uh, and, and, uh, and, and strikes where people were, like, wielding guns against the companies, right? And you also had, at that same time, you had all across the Midwest, you had um, people occupying factories. You had, on the West Coast, you had the longshoremen who were, before that, thought of as unorganizable because... There was a high turnover. It was supposedly low skill. People were, um, there were too many sites, supposedly. They had a militant strike uh, and formed a union in which during that strike, the, the uh, army and tanks were brought out to fight them. At the same time as that, you had somewhat unrelatable, uh, unrelated, You had the, uh, you had what was called the bonus march, where world war i veterans i mean World War I veterans marched on the White House with guns right um, in, in the tens of thousands and were met uh, by General MacArthur with tanks right so in that and, and, and at that time, you know there were ten demonstrations of tens of thousands of people at once demonstrating to to tear down the system and all those Union strikes weren't just about wages. They were being led by radical visionaries who openly talked about getting rid of capitalism and that these were struggles to get rid of that. And in that milieu is where we got the, the most, uh, the, the biggest liberal reforms. In the past hundred years, well, one of the two biggest, one of them being maybe the Civil Rights Bill and the other one being the New Deal.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: It didn't come just because someone was in the right position. It came it, it, it came because there was a militant, radical movement happening at that same time. And, and at that time, a demonstration wasn't just we're demonstrating that we're bodies out here in the street. They were saying we're demonstrating that these 20,000 people can shut down your industry by withholding our labor. And so there was so 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 and and so in between that time and this stuff that I'm saying I don't have enough time so I'm going to be very essentializing but it's still right. <laughs> <laughs> the the Shortly after that period, um, the, the left in the U.S. wanted uh, the U.S. to join the United Front Against Fascism and to fight Hitler. Um, and so radicals in the U.S. being connected to radicals all around the world organizationally and uh, ideologically said, well, look, the, the deal is if the U.S. goes and fights Hitler, we here in the U.S. won't overthrow the government while you do that,
3: <laughs> right?
1: And part of that meant that radicals in the biggest in the biggest uh, radical organization in the history of the United States, which was at the time the Communist Party USA, went underground. They decide all of a sudden. They were not radical. They were progressive. They were not, or or just liberal. And and you know. And again, like I said, I'm essentializing because at the same time, what was happening is radicals were being attacked in the labor movement. But so they went underground uh, while while there was a while the U.S. was fighting fascism. Now that left it open, so that in the '50s. You could have the McCarthy era, the House Un-American Activities Committee could point to people and say, that person there, they're lying to you. They're actually a communist. They're actually a radical. And, And it was true. They had been concealing things. Whereas had it been 15 years before, they would have said, that person's a communist, that person's a radical, and people would be like, yeah, I know. (laughs) <laughs> you know when they when them and a bunch of people helped us move furniture back into my house while the police were trying to move it out they were talking about revolution so so that that uh going underground for the united front against fascism helped the the mccarthy era uh really be effective and so because of the House Un-American Activities Committee and uh, splits within the Communist Party around uh, revelations of, about things about Stalin and, uh, and, and, and the, the uh, cult of personality, things that happen around that. Um, you had that biggest organization, radical organization, breaking up into all of these small groups. That by the end of the 50s, became the organizations that we think of as the new left. And the new left had a different take on what had been happening in the period just before that. They were like, we're not going underground. Fuck you, we're revolutionaries. Fuck you, we're communists. Fuck you, we're socialists. And that that was good. But to go along with that, what happened was a focus now on cities and universities where now those other places that used to be organized some of the places in the midwest places like montana places like alabama places like utah that working class was not being organized by radicals anymore and there was a focus on on these universities and what, you know, if you're not a grad student and you don't have a job, when you do a strike, it's not the same. Right. Mm-hmm. It becomes things became more based on spectacle. Right. Things be, it, you know, it became the be all end all to say we are against this to do that. And, and that started changing the nature of things. And the, and the left started hiding they started hiding, even though they were out. But they started hiding in a way from the rest of the people that needed to be organized. They started hiding in art, and they started hiding in academia. Mm-hmm. And I'm a product of both of those things, right? <laughs> and 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 so, uh, no longer, for the most part, were radicals organizing on the job. And they left that to the folks that weren't thinking about that didn't have a radical vision and which is also why unions became way less effective right the unions that didn't run the radicals out like the longshoremen they're they're still the most militant unions union out there and they also are the most successful because you know they they during the 50s said we don't care if you're communist we just want to know if you want to win right and they um and they, they and and so that's why you have a basic labor job uh where you, where you can work 4 hours a day and get 104,000 a year because they'll shut your shit down <laughs> and and, call, and 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 an interesting history about the longshoremen in the Bay Area, I think it's different up here, but the longshoremen in the Bay Area, when they went to have their big strike in the 30s, um, the, the leader of the longshoremen of, of ILWU was, uh, was a socialist, Harry, Harry Bridges. And um, he knew that what they were going to do, what the bosses were going to do was go to the black community and try to get them to scab. So he circumvented that and went to the black community. He went to nightclubs he went to to door to door he went to churches, and said, "Look, if the black community joins our strike, we'll make sure that black folks are hired we'll make you know we'll make sure that you're hired for these good jobs and 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 the the union was so strong and that and they shut things down so tight that basically that that the union is the one who does the hiring there, not the boss. And that if you lose your job, your job goes to your next of kin. So to this day in the Bay Area, longshoremen are 80% black, right? And and that's that has to do with with um, people understanding where their power is. Um, uh, yeah. So I. I I don't even remember how
3: I
2: got it. <laughs> and that's completely fine. Yeah. Uh, I mean that that history is so inspiring and it is so radical. I mean, you got Eugene Debs back in the day running for president as a socialist out of prison, getting millions of votes on a platform of a maximum wage. Not even just a minimum wage, but capping it at the top, chopping it at the top uh and and you know you got the sedition act and the red scare like you mentioned pushing people into hiding why is that radical history not reflected in so much media Uh, i think even your movie took what we think of as union activism and really brought it to the surface of like this is what it is it's not like um you know a calm sort of bargaining table it's strikes it's withholding of labor uh, but if if you watch a lot of mainstream movies and media, it's a lot of oh unions are corrupt. You got those union bosses, your Jimmy Hoffas, and you know um, you have anti union trainings at work. So why is there this difference between the real history and legacy of, of of unions and what's shown?
1: I mean, obviously they don't want us to know where the source of our power is. I mean, and 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 the, the and. and it's especially, you know, especially when we come to certain issues that we're thinking of, that are that thought of as not being labor issues, right? And it's really hard, you know, and, and I end up sounding um, like a broken record when, I, when you point out that it's all labor issues. Like, this is Martin Luther King uh, Jr. Day uh, week, and the reason black folks were brought here was for free labor. Right. What's for exploitation? And that is still where the base of power of any group of people is. That's the base of power that we have in order, which is wherever we work. Us organizing on the job and being able, not just organizing on the job like, hey, do you want to meet after work? That's part of it. But <laughs> meaning us organizing so that we can collectively withhold our labor. Is the thing that allows us power not just in our job, but it allows us the the ability to if we do that on a wider level, it allows us the ability to have control over the economy and therefore over the the way society works in general. So any demand that we want made, you know um, is any demand that we want made is something that that we have to be able to to have a consequence for we can't just mm-hmm. you know and 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 so i think that's why even when they they portray let's say it's not something as union bashing as the irishman but <laughs> the but it's some other thing that shows you know the union wants to do this you know and you have that in a few scorsese movies where it's like the only time they mention the union is like the mob wants them to strike, so they do this thing, you know, or whatever. And um, But when they just show a union, like, it'll be like, uh, like you said, some negotiating table. and it's and, and, and you don't even understand where the power is coming from. You don't understand why people should be able to strike. Like, what is it about? They don't want us to think about exploitation like you will hear so much talk about taxes but they don't look at at when you're at they they never want to put out the fact that when you're at work you're being taxed every hour Mm -hmm. because no matter where you work if you're getting paid ten dollars an hour twenty dollars an hour it's only because somebody's making ten times that off of you right and so they don't want us to think about things in those terms um, and some of it is not does not have to be so conspiratorial. There's not usually somebody sitting like being like, "Hey, how do we get people to think this?" <laughs> it doesn't have to happen that way. They know that that enough folks have been indoctrinated with certain ideas that if you just hand somebody a camera, most likely they're going to make something that falls in line with. With uh the ideas that they are ready to put out, right, you add to that just a little bit of pressure of being like you know of of some producer saying that no, this is the way things actually work, and then you got that, and beyond that um, the way that art is taught is is one you know is is one where um, we're taught to look at conventions of art as the right way to do things, right? So if you have a love song, if you want to write a love song, there's a few things you can do. You can be like, okay, it's either I love you, I really, really love you. (laughs) Do you love me? How long are you going to love me? Do you love me more than that other person? You know, there's a few variations on that. And as long as you stick within those conventions, you know, you can do crazy melodies or whatever you want to do. But sticking within those subjects means you have a love song. But in reality, you may be facing all sorts of other things that go into your feelings about your significant other or some other person. And they may be very complicated. They may be like, I really love you, and I really like hanging out with you most nights. Your laugh is a little bit annoying, and I hope you don't (laughs) do that around my friends. Right? And that may be really true, but if you put that in a song, all of a sudden it's not a love song. Right? But that's what's true to life. But we've been taught that there are certain conventions that, that make art right or not right. And so we'll have that in, in film, too. Like someone might even have slightly radical ideas, but, but, but they go to make a film and, um, you know, they, they're used to these conventions. So they have a thing where some, okay, I need these two people to meet. Where are they gonna meet they're gonna meet they're gonna meet for a noon cafe date and I've never been on a noon cafe date <laughs> but I've seen hundreds of them in movies because it's an easy location to get, and you've seen it in other movies and 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 so that ends up, like we end up thinking like that's a part of life, Mm -hmm. right? Usually people don't have the time to leave their work at that time. You know, it's not really happening. However, once you put something else real in it that exists, that isn't normally put in film, it starts feeling wrong. So more people have either been around, or noticed, or been for, or part of, or against some sort of on-the-job organizing thing. Mm -hmm. However, you put... that that More people than have had noon cafe dates, I bet. (laughs) But you put that in a film, all of a sudden it feels forced, because we haven't seen it before. And so... If you're a writer dealing with these things and trying to, you know, and you're not, you know, you haven't dedicated your life to trying to uh, make a revolutionary movement happen, you'll be like, okay, that's not going to work. You know, like you think about, you might even think about it like, okay, I did have this experience. Maybe that can be put in there or that's just somewhere in the background. You're not going to put it in because it doesn't fit that. And um, you know, so um, I think that's a lot of what what it is. Is like we we have these ideas of what art is, and what I- ideas of what fits into what we're supposed to be talking about.
2: I think one thing that's so fascinating and subversive about some of the moments, and sorry to bother you, is. We've all seen the scene where people wake up next to their, their significant other. But you never see the garage door open and then realize the conditions that many of us have lived in, which is crappy housing or a garage. Um, you know, they go out to drinks after the movie, uh, you know, after work. But the car is one that we can relate to. You know, it's it's broken down. It's steaming out. Um, you know, I, f- I feel like... That is what you manage to communicate through a lot of your art. Um, That all art is political in a way, and you imbue a politic into your art. Because meeting in a cafe is almost a political statement, right? You're meeting in a business. You're exchanging money. Maybe you're buying someone else the coffee.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think all art, everything is political, and art is communication, and it it. It it says something about what what you believe and even just the fact that you believe that is, uh, you know, has to do with the world around you. Um, And I think, you know, what I've tried to sell to other uh, folks that are kind of, um, you know, allowing, you know, funding things that, that I'm doing is that, look, people... Relate to this because it's something that they they don't normally see right it's something that they go through that they don't normally see and um and and when that happens it's like a really good joke right like you, a comedian will say something and i usually it's not from outer space like it's something you've thought or something like that it's an observation that Make sense to you, but you just never heard it said that way right and and i th- and and that's kind of the space that I'm working in so that I can um you know uh, get people to to think about uh being parts being a part of a movement
2: using irony to con- to relate class analysis
1: yeah I mean I don't even know if it's as you know like I- what I do is I try to think about what I'm really going, to, going through. I don't necessarily, you know, yeah, I have that general goal in my mind. But um, I know to really get there, I have to think about what I'm going through and what I think. and And in order to figure that out, I really have to concentrate because, you know, if I were to say I'm going to write a song about relationships, the first thing that would come out are those corny subjects, right? And it's because often other work, you know, a lot of what's in our brain of what the world is, is not our actual experience. It's, you know, like, for instance, I've never been to uh, Delhi in India, and but... I have a picture in my head of what Delhi looks like. I could, I probably have such, I feel like I have such a clear picture in my head. I could tell you like what it sounds like there, what clothes people are wearing and uh, you know, what the buildings look like, but I've never been there. And that, if I think about it, that image probably comes from a James Bond movie or something, Mm -hmm. right? Or some other thing. And we have, our ideas about what the world is from other pieces, usually pieces of art. You know, songs, uh, pictures, movies, TV shows. And so for me to think, of, you know, for me to get to what I really think about something, sometimes I have to, like, I have to, to really investigate myself and think what leads me to those thoughts, think about what I really feel in those situations. Because if I were to sit down and write a breakup scene, um, it would be full of cliches that come from breakup scenes, so that, you know, like that's a quote-unquote breakup scene. And if you were to transcribe the conversation you had the last time you broke up with someone, you'd probably be like, "Well, that's not cinematic." <laughs> and the only reason it's not cinematic is cuz you haven't seen it in cinema yet. And um and 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 and, and so for me, you know, all analysis is it ha- you know, all analysis is uh heightening contradiction right you're saying here is the the system we live in right here it has all of these hundreds of contradictions this right here is the one that you know ripples out and causes these other ones so look at this one let me heighten this one and um and so contradiction is is very much what irony is about. And both comedy and tragedy often revolve around that irony, around that contradiction. And analysis does too. Mm -hmm. Right, So it's all like one and the same thing. Like I'm trying to write about life and I'm looking for what the actual contradictions are in that life, in that world, and which brings me to the giant contradiction in this economy, which is the working class versus the ruling class. And um, But then, you know, saying that and and looking at it in a big way almost means nothing sometimes. Like, you need to do that, but how does that how do people interact with that contradiction?
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's kind of what you know my art is usually about.
2: Uh, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King warned us in a speech that the enemies of racial justice were also the enemies of unions. Um, he stated that labor rights were linked to human rights and civil rights. His last speech was addressing sanitation workers in Memphis. So I'd love to hear your thoughts more about the connections between all of these different systems of power.
3: Yeah.
1: Well, I also would add to that that, like, uh, he often said that the Southern Christian Leadership Conference um, was able to be funded because the United Meat Packers Union Collected funds so that they could start right and um and that that this was a you know that that there was already identified a connection with with those things and I, I think that um much of what Dr. King talked about, especially later you know in life and when we say later in life, you know we'll be talking about the early sixties as early in life and then the that you know often people will and then they'll talk about 1968 as later in life but what happened is, is as he started talking about people using the power of the strike to make changes he stopped being amplified so at the time he wasn't that popular at the time of his death he wasn't as popular with black folks anymore Right, it wasn't just we often get told it's because the Black Power movement gained popularity. That's true, but it's also true that they stopped carrying his speeches on the news because he started looking for ways that the Black community could have a say in these issues, and so um, him speaking to the in him speaking to the sanitation workers. Not only was he supporting their strike, but he was advocating that they turn it into a citywide general strike. And this is the part of King that won't get com- promoted on the McDonald's commercial, of course. <laughs> and, um, and, and, and uh, yeah, he made many statements about... Um, the fight for the fight against racism and the fight for social justice being intertwined with the with the fight to stop exploitation. He made many of those many of those things, um, but again, like I said his his um, message stopped being amplified by the mainstream media uh, once that started happening, and at the same time. Even though it wasn't being amplified as much, you know, the, the, the U.S. saw him as even more of a threat at that time. And there were definitely a lot of folks around him who were more radical than him, at least at the time. There was a the guy, Bayard Rustin, who at the time was a Communist uh, Party member later on. <laughs> he became a very right-wing sellout. Um. And um, but but um. Yeah. So I. I. This is the thing: is that if we're fighting for changes around uh, racial injustice, we have to look at where our power actually lies. I always say that had the left been organizing in the St. Louis area for. Uh. 15 or 20 years before uh Mike Brown was killed then then maybe they could have called for even a partial general strike you know in the St. Louis area and had they done that there would have been an indictment of that cop
3: mm. like
1: within a day within two days it, you know it wouldn't have been worth losing all that money the question is we all we all know you know and and it's something that at least is ingrained in us that those with the money have the power you know even republicans won't argue with that some of them will be like those with the money should have the power but nobody will argue that those with the money have the power the the question is how can we right now make those with the with that have the money and the power heed To what we say to do and that's through the power of withholding labor um and 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 when that idea is put out there especially right now it's very you know it it,
3: it's it it's uh very uh um it's it's infective it people
1: um latch on to it Uh, when i look at um Occupy Oakland. Like I have been involved since the '80s in various kinds of organizations, a lot of different campaigns in in the Bay Area, um, from radical communist organization uh, to um, you know nonprofit things, to cultural things, to other multiracial anti-racist organizations, to all-black organizations. Um and we never had as many everyday black folks come out as we did for occupy oakland right and and specifically as soon as we announced that we were going to do a general strike because there was this combination of wait okay now they're not just talking about marching now they're not just talking about showing you know their anger on the streets, because, you know, before that, you would go and say, hey, we're going to have this anti-police brutality thing, and people would be like, what is that going to do? What are we going to do? What? Oh, you guys marching again. That's not going to do anything. And that would be, even though we would get some people out there, that would be often the biggest response. But with this, I think it sparked people's imagination, and they said, oh, you're talking about stopping profit. And I think that could work. It, you know, honestly, it was also because it was connected to something that people saw as being nationwide. But we had we we ended up having 50,000 people gather together, um, striking under the banner of smash capitalism. Right. And and that was not just for the bigger idea only of smash capitalism, but it was like this is there's an effective strategy being put forward here. And I think that that's often what would be happening like as you know, through the 80s, 90s and early 2000s, you talk to folks that were in like nonprofit organizations who were like tasked with, uh, you know, like vaguer things of fighting poverty in, in uh, neighborhoods of color. And things like that. And, and you would hear people being frustrated that, oh, people won't get involved in these movements. Uh, you know, they're just too busy, you know, going to work. They're too busy hustling. They're too busy doing these things, you know, trying to pay bills. And often people would say that directly, like, y'all can talk about this conscious shit all you want. I need to pay some bills. And the thing is, is that the movement got away from people understanding that what we're talking about is people paying bills, right? It got to this almost, um, you know, uh, almost a moralistic campaign separated from the fact that these values are so that we have more power and more ability to get the things that we need. So I think the, the direction that comes with something that says, look, this is how we have power. This is how we get the things that we need. That's something that's explosive, and right now, it's happening all over the country. Right, all over the country because of this movie. I have people like reaching out to me from all over the place. Like there were theater workers in in uh, Utah who said, "We saw the movie. Now we have a union. <laughs> what do we do?" <laughs> <laughs> and so they connected with Ayatsi, and they, now they have a, a movie theater workers union there, right? And um, but what I'm what I'm saying is there's a lot more than that happening. These are just people that are reaching out to me because you know because of the movie. Uh, there was also like um, a, a, a bunch of baristas. in in Seattle, like folks that are just trying to figure out how to do it. Like, okay, we made a, we made an, uh, these baristas in Seattle made an organization they didn't have any contact with any other labor movement. So they were like, yeah, these things were happening. So we all quit. And which was not necessarily the tactical thing to do. But (laughs) the point is they didn't have any contact with anybody else, but they were inspired they wanted to do something. And, and, and this is why we have to uh, have a, a, a radical militant labor movement with that, 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 that uses the withholding of labor to not only get higher wages, not only get uh, better working conditions and, and benefits, but to fight for Social justice, broader social justice issues, because that's the thing that's getting folks excited. And there are so many things happening. I'm going all over the country often and hearing about things happening in small places that are that 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 are things that I wouldn't have heard of before. And it's very important for radicals to be involved in this, because this new burgeoning labor movement can't just be only about the wages for right now and the benefits for right now, it has to be part of a broader, pr- part of a bigger struggle. That's about, you know, fighting. You know, I don't want to feel like once I start listening to this stuff, uh, <laughs> I've missed up. but fighting all of these fighting racism, fighting, uh, fi- fighting homophobia, fighting, uh, you know, fighting for um, um, fighting against these immigration raids. Things like that, we can use the power of the strike to stop all of this. There was the, the there was the uh, the Wayfair workers who um, went on strike to stop their company from selling furniture to ICE. All of these things are happening. Like I'm telling you, 15 years ago, it wouldn't be happening, right? All of these things are little little things that are going on, and right now we have the prospect of of, of folks uh, wanting to vote in uh, Medicare for All. And that's not going to happen unless we can have targeted strikes on certain industries that hold power. There are going to have to be general strikes in certain geographic areas to make it happen. It's not just going to happen just by threatening the primary folks. There are going to have to be general strikes.
2: Can, can, uh, just so everyone knows what a general strike is, because I, I know our union um, with Oregon State University and our contract, they don't want us to have the power of strike at all. They're almost non-negotiable and giving us no strike power. But what separates a single workplace strike from what is known as a general strike?
1: Well, and this is why there has to be radical leadership in these movements. Some of these areas that need to be unionized, such as fast food workers, um, In order to unionize fast food workers, you're going to have to have solidarity strikes. You can't just have this Burger King on this side of town striking by itself. You're going to have to have all the Burger Kings in this area striking. And that's that's called a solidarity strike. Solidarity strikes are illegal. Who can guess why? (laughs) Because they work. They were made illegal because they work. And so. Um we are going this this is one reason, a critique I have of SEIU's fast food workers thing is that they didn't plan on making it an actual union in that way because they would have had to have solidarity strikes in order for it to happen, and it got turned into just a voter drive, basically, right? And so we need radical leadership that is willing to go to jail because they are calling for solidarity strikes. Right. And and so, you know, I don't really know technically at what level it becomes a general strike. But the idea is that there are different, different places, different sites, different industries having solidarity with each other. Right. Um, the 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 idea that maybe if walmart went on strike then uh to support them you know the the teamsters would say we're not bringing anything in anyway right so those sorts of things and, and you know there's various levels of them it was something that happened a lot of times in the US until 1948 which was the last general strike which actually happened in Oakland California um and And those are the sorts of things that, and and it's not really that's the, that sort of thing is not really that far away. I'm telling you in all of these spots, people are organizing they don't know about each other organizing. I was just in Alabama and the uh and and the gender and race studies grad students had made a union, and they were trying to figure out. You know, how do they spread out to other departments and how do they do all this? And I was like, well, because I did, you know, I was like, well, you know, there are other grad unions that you could talk to. And they they didn't know. They didn't know. And it's not really their fault. A, a lot of stuff is is being kept from folks, things that you think people know. People don't a lot of people don't know about that Wayfair strike, even though it's just a, like a one day thing. People don't know about these things. And as soon as that starts all getting connected up, we're gonna see a wave of people organizing around things. We're gonna see we're gonna see um, some general strikes in certain cities because somebody got killed by the police and and they get that that cop taken out by having a a general strike. We're gonna see other things like that. We're gonna see people fight against ICE through the withholding of labor. And there's gonna be other things too, but I'm saying we need a, a, we need a movement with te- teeth that can stop profit and demand the things that we need.
2: That really, I think is a good takeaway instead of that vote with your dollar mentality that gets pushed so much. You know, if you just yeah. buy the right things, you can change the world. But well, it's not about that at
1: all. Well, and I I believe, um, and somebody can prove me wrong, but everything that, you know, I think that the the boycott um, got pushed as the priority on the left when at the same time, as strikes were being left behind, mm. right? And, and the thing about a boycott, you don't know who's involved, who's doing it, who's not. It also... Um, it, you know, it, you know you can 't you 're not controlling a site you 're not doing it and 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 from what I can see, boycotts got really popular um, when the u f w started promoting them in the '60s and the The reality of why the u f w promoted boycotts is because they couldn 't really strike because the u f w was anti undocumented worker and they used to they used to help uh, immigration get rid of, uh, they used to help immigration get rid of undocumented workers right before payday. They used to help um, immigration man the borders. So how are they going to have a strike when they can't really, you know, they're not even organizing most of the people that are working. So they started calling for boycotts, right, Uh, to, to help their thing. And boycotts became, you know, this whole ethical consumption thing to where it didn't even have to be a boycott anymore. Now it's like, I don't like the owner of that company. I'm not buying this shoe. I'm not buying that thing. And it's even less powerful than a boycott, right? And so we end up feeling like we're doing something. And all of it is promoted because, or be, because of two things. They don't want us to know about organizing labor movements and organizing labor movements are hard, right? It's a lot harder to organize on the job than it is to be like, well, I don't buy any of that stuff, so I'm all good, right? <laughs> right? It's it's harder. And because you're also dealing with people, it's easier to, like, get together on Saturday afternoon for a protest with everybody that agrees with you
3: mm-hmm.
1: than it is to organize on the job with people that might be way far away from you right and and figure out how to talk to them figure out how to bring them to the left and it's not hard and it's not always going to be successful but it also makes us better organizers and makes us understand what it's going to take to do certain things and yeah we do need that coalescing of like minds sometimes too and you know need that but we also you know have left behind the art of of talking about things. I I mean, you know. And this is something that maybe some folks don't agree with me on, but uh, a lot of a, a lot of like talking to each other about these ideas and trying to organize each other sometimes is replaced by activity on social media, right? It's like I'm saying these ideas on social media, and 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 unfortunately, there's a, a, a a tendency to say these things on social media and it changes how we act towards each other. But not only does it change how we act towards each other, it's done anonymously, right? And that's not what we need at this point. We need people understanding that they're they're real neighbors, they're real family members. This is what we believe and this is where it's going because that's how we see that it's big. That's how we see that these are ideas that we can be part of And um, and 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 that's how we also talk to people differently. Like, you know, like it it changes how we deal with each other and changes the potential of the movement.
2: It's really changed the way leftists communicate news. Like you said, finding out about the Wayfair strike Um, back in the 20s. Uh, activists like emma goldman would spout anarchist propaganda to thousands of people who are just like who's this woman on a box shouting and everyone gravitates they start to like what they hear um but now we have almost 90 percent of all media owned by three companies and uh we we just don't get out on the street and talk about these things
1: yeah. and so, i don't want to say that it's all bad i just think that um yeah sometimes it placates us and makes us feel that we've done the thing that we need to do and or and 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 we need to have that as the icing on the cake and not you know the and not the meat
2: so how how to are to some ways that <laughs> 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 so uh what what i think fascinates me is that We've you've been able to use art to communicate and have those conversations to spark those conversations with other people. Um, what are some of the next steps that you think the labor movement needs to do to really keep with Dr. Martin Luther King's vision of racial equity of social justice being built into labor unions, and it's not just about wages and agreeing to a no strike. Yeah, laws.
1: we need. I think one thing that could happen right away is, you know. Um, if there are, if we want to talk about just right here on the campus, um, so for instance, I was at the uh, Black Student Center, I don't know which, what do you called, is that, what is, it? Black Cultural Center, and um, they were talking about a couple years ago, there was a, you know, there was a struggle with somebody with the uh, Confederate flag. out. If, uh, you know, a, a, a real statement of solidarity would be if the, if, administration isn't dealing with something like that, for CGE to be like, okay, we're not working today. you know, that sort of a thing. Those sorts of things will cause action, right? And so you can think about that in many other situations that aren't just on this campus, right? Um, you you know, the, uh, you know, I, uh, there's, there's things symbolically like that that happen with longshoremen, and uh, so, for instance, longshoremen shut down the uh, ports uh, for a day in support of uh, in support uh, in, uh, in support of the Oscar Grant protests. That was good as a symbol, but it was definitely like they announced it's going to be one day, and then it's over. So the boss can be like, "Cool, we'll move this around to that day and that day." But that's kind of of showing what some of the real things could be, mm-hmm. right? And that would also let people understand it. So if there are uh, struggles against racist actions, struggles against racist policies, for unions to um, be part of that struggle, and not just by showing up at the demonstration, but by getting their members to – and I know it's not something that's just an on-off switch, Mm -hmm. but – but getting their members to be part of that struggle by withholding labor uh in a in a tactical way to to uh make these changes happen and sometimes some of those changes might actually be uh more more uh attainable than the wage hike right like you know it depends on what it is right because uh and and it, it it allows for a victory and allows for for uh, folks to see you know where their power is and, and and so I think that if we're going on the trajectory of what uh, Dr. King was talking about and where he was going and and since the last thing that he called for was a general strike in order and he didn't only put that in terms of the, the sanitation workers' wages. He did, but he talked about it in terms of dignity, right, in terms of the idea that, you know, of of, of, of of being against someone just stepping on you and doing whatever they wanted. The idea of withholding labor and stopping profit, you know, as more than a demonstration, um, as getting to where power is. I think that's that's where we go with that legacy Um, because otherwise we have a lot of lip service about being against these things, right? But, but not, and, and, and it's not really always purposeful lip service. A lot of people just don't know what can we do? What, what do we do about this? And, and part of that is because we haven't been, been getting the analysis of, how this system works, right? A lot of the institutions that are were around fighting racism at at the time of Dr. King, like NAACP, they were started by, for instance, the NAACP, one of the founders of W.B. Du Bois, who later in life became a communist and um and and was advocating the use of strikes or uh to, to, to fight against racism, um, some of the, the the most powerful unions that were part of the civil rights movement of the twenties and thirties were things like the Brotherhood of sleeping Car porters that were u- unions that could shut down the train system, right So these are things that have been forgotten um, and 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 I think that that's that that's the direction that we need to go on all fronts is is having an analysis of how this system works and having an analysis of what we can do with that. And that means having a militant, radical, mass labor movement that can use the withholding of labor as a tool uh, to change the system.
2: I want to check on...
3: I want to check on how we're doing on time, real quick. How much? <laughs> it's about thirty minutes. So, uh, you know,
2: there is—gosh, there is so much. I'd and obviously, we'll like, can, can I add to that right here? <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, so, like I said, people don't aren't knowing about things going on. At the the flip side of that is that is that everything that you do you know in in terms of of action on the job it does still inspire so many people right um uh when when i went to the 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 uh harvard grad students i don't know what's happening right now but they they were about to go on strike or whatever and i went there and they were telling me oh you know we got inspired by two things one was this uh this uh, grocery worker strike that happened there in Boston. And the other one was uh, Michigan State's grad students. They And they kept talking about Michigan State's grad students. Then when I went to Michigan State, I said, well, you, you know you know that Harvard, one of the reasons they're doing what they're, the Harvard grad students, the reason they're doing what they're doing is because they heard about you. And they were like, what? We, they had no idea that people really knew about it outside of there um, similarly with uh, Occupy Oakland um, you know uh, in, it inspired Occupy Nigeria which after we had our general strike Occupy Nigeria said we're so excited by what happened so that when when uh, the government announced they were getting rid of the oil subsidy they called for a general strike, and the whole country shut down for three weeks. Oil, trains, uh, planes, schools, factories, everything shut down for three weeks, and they didn't get everything that they asked for, but they got way better than what it was, and it was 200,000 people in each city were out on the street. They were doing things like occupied Nigeria style, and they kept meaning like they'd bring out their whole living rooms out onto the street and be taking pictures and stuff. And they were saying that this was inspired by Occupy Oakland. I only knew about it because somebody reached out to me from there, and but most people didn't know that. They didn't know that that was doing that. Um, and I, you know, I, I went shortly afterward, we, the coup was on tour and we were in Italy. And we, in Venice, the students were like, uh, what did Occupy Oakland think when we stopped that train for them? And I was like, "What?" And they, they were like, "Well, yeah, we we stopped the lo- train loaded with—I can't remember what it was—but they went and stopped the train in support of the Occupy Oakland. Occupy Oakland getting raided, right? All of this stuff is being heard about all over the place, you know. And I, I went to a to a uh, to Rome, and they were like. They, they, The workers had occupied their factory. They went on strike and occupied their factory. And it was because the squad that was next to him had told them that Occupy Oakland had done it so they can do it. Right. All, all of these folks are what you're doing here is part of this movement that's bubbling up right now. And there's a there's a point that we have in history that's that 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 that's a point that. Can change the course of of how people think of themselves in relationship to getting rid of capitalism and how people think of themselves in relationship to each other and the power that we have. And what you do right here is is especially because of the time that it's happening, it's going to have a ripple effect throughout geographically, throughout the U.S. and maybe beyond. And Throughout time, so yeah. even
2: even uh capitalism and the system's response to moms, moms who are houseless, homeless housing insecure, squatting in empty buildings when there is a hundred empty buildings poor for one mom facing housing insecurity in Oakland, that was meant with a r fifteen rifles and tanks
1: yeah um I mean. They're scared of, of movements happening. They're scared of those things. So, you know, they're going to meet with those, but that, that still can't stop it. Right? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I I think that, that just shows what they're worried about. But uh, it still doesn't stop the movement, and they weren't able to stop it.
2: So in the spirit of, um, you know what, often gets uh, this, this non I don't know
1: if everybody knows yeah. w- w- what she's talking about. There's a, a group of homeless mothers. Uh, they were all black. And um, they, and they um, I think there's about seven or eight of them. And they occupied a home that a developer had bought and just left sitting there. And the developer had many homes sitting around because in order to, to keep rent prices up, um, because, you know, they're not sustainable, uh, people aren't going to pay for them. They just keep them empty instead of lowering the rent. And uh, so they occupied the home. There was a big battle around it. And at one point, the uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the police came and raided um, there was so much community support that it ended up being where they were able to to um, um, get they were put they put their stuff together. And they were able to, to um, get the owner to sell them a house, you know, without them having the credit for it and all that. So something that, that you know a minor victory for those folks. But the point is, is that it brought out the community to support them. Hundreds of people came out to support them and defend them, and um, you know it is it, it is indicative of the the fact that people are looking at solving these problems through collective
3: action
2: as as we uh, draw to a, a close here and we're about to open it up to audience questions in a bit, you know uh, one thing that I think has come through through all this is that um, in the mainstream sort of narrative, people take Dr. King's legacy and, and practice of nonviolent resistance to mean getting a city permit, lining up on a sidewalk where it's nice and, and tidy on a weekend afternoon when some people don't have work, and that that is the nonviolent resistance. But you've mentioned striking, uh, s- squatting and taking houses and these other. So how, how do you envision the resistance? Uh, in, in the spirit of um nonviolent in the sense that you know, ideally not hurting anyone and, and just resistance in general. Well, how does that show up in his legacy?
1: Well, so I think you know, the the, the idea that protests are something that only happens that, that should only happen if you have these permits and, you know, do it in these legal ways come sprout out of the idea that it's all spectacle you know like that's what's going to lead you to that right it's all spectacle it's all using our voice then why not do it in the way that's legal right why not if it's just using the voice and just showing something right so i can see how some people would come up with that however that's not what that that that's not what uh that's not where our power is at. Our power is at being able to stop profit, right? If it's just about free speech, then yeah, you can sit in the free speech section and say stuff. The thing that the fallacy with free speech is you can say whatever you want without having any power to do anything about it, right? And so that's, that's what that's about is really about controlling what our idea of our movement is. And if the idea of our move, if they can do that, if, the, if it comes into just these, um, and, you know, I'm not for, you know, like some people are like, oh, this this one group out of the coalition got these permits. So now I'm not doing that demonstration. Mm-hmm. I'm not necessarily for or against that. I'm just saying that what that idea does is it grounds the movement down to just being about speech and that's not what we're about we're about trying to get power trying to get material resources so that we can have so that we can have the things that we need right and that only comes from being able to stop profit being a from from a physicality that happens even a strike a strike you could possibly do it by you know just being out you you could do a strike by everybody goes home and just goes home and hope the boss doesn't hire more people <laughs> obviously that's not going to work you can try it but it's going to be failed or you could get out in front with a picket line and say we're nonviolent please don't go in and hope the boss doesn't bring some folks in you can try that that always fails They're always going to bring somebody in because the whole thing is their business has to go. So, or you have people out in front saying nobody's getting through, right? And I've heard I don't, you know, and and at the very least, you pushing somebody to make sure they don't get through—that's violence, right? It's necessary, Mm -hmm. and it's violence. Right. So even if you're just blocking or let's say even if you're just threatening to block, like nobody comes through because you're standing there saying we're not letting anybody through. That's violence, too. That's threatening that to physically keep people out. So the idea that you can have a strike and it be nonviolent and the idea and, and, and with with King calling for strikes, knowing that the only way strikes work is if you keep out scabs. That means. He just had a different idea of what nonviolence means than some okay. people do today. Right? And so, and, and, and so if you want to say, okay, keeping out scabs is still nonviolent, fine, I'm with you. Then go ahead. If that can move you to that place so that you're down with keeping out scabs, then fine. <laughs> Because I have heard that art, you know, because especially like with uh, stuff with Occupy, you'd have like old school union folks that kind of were confused by it. And they'd be like, they're violent. And I'm like, keeping out scabs is violent. And, you know, I'm some some of these cases. And they're, they're like, no, that's just, you know, what we have to do. Right. <laughs> cool. If you want to call that nonviolent, you can. Um, but uh yeah so so that, you know there's there's a physicality to it like is it violent to you know you know like you'll you'll hear people like on the moms for housing instagram account the folks that that overtook the house you had people claiming it was violent because somebody owned it and you're taking someone's thing right and um <laughs> you know and 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 so i'm not here to argue what's violent or what's not i can only argue what needs to be done because on the other hand the the other argument would be like it's not violent because that's a that that's an inanimate object is the house however that line of that's not what we would argue either because we would argue that you know the boss stealing money that we would buy food with is violence right we would argue that. So the question is not just to be like, what are we going to define as violence? But the question is, what needs to be done and what's moral? So even if there's them overtaking the house is violence, then it needs, that's violence that needs to be done. Right? Um, so, so yeah, I, I, I think sometimes we'll get caught up in the semantics of it and that's we're missing what the, the real argument needs to be.
2: When the cops and the bosses and the landowner, landowners and landlords come in, they are not going to be nonviolent either.
3: Exactly.
1: Stay home, just cry and cuss me, or your guns go off. If it's time to bust me, or their tanks have time to rust. They got the armies turning bullets into gold. They got the hookers turning tricks into coal. And every time the police kicks in the dough, an angel gas breaks dips in the O. And even if a D-boy flips in my O, it ain't enough to buy shit anymore. Sleep in the doorway, piss on the flow. Look in the sky, wait for missiles to show. It's finna blow, cause they got the TV, we got the truth. They own the judges and we got the proof. We got hella people, they got helicopters, they got the bombs
3: And we got the, we got the, we got the guillotine
1: Him. You don't write out them lies, you just them Get offline, plug into this modem. No, you can't outvote outvote them, The rules are still golden. Only Jews we hold 'em if we guard our scrolling. If you press the ear to the turf that is stolen, you can hear the sound of limitations exploding. Please, sir, may we have another portion? We're children of the beast that dodged the abortion. Neck play firm between the floor and the portion. We'll shut your sh- shit down. Don't call it extortion. Caution, we're coming for your head. So call the feds and get files and shred. Every textbook red set text, bring you the bread, but guess what we got you instead?
3: We got the guillotine!